Welcome to Street Fighter 2, covering Obi-Wan Kenobi, the limited series from Disney Plus, Episode 5. My name is Johnny C., and as always, I'm here in the Aqua Cave to have a nice, calm, fireside chat with everybody about the fantastic streaming content from Disney+. Plus. Uh, centered around the Star Wars universe, specifically an older gentleman on the hunt for an old flame. <laughs> oh man, you know what guys, I don't workshop these entrances. You press play, you know why you're here. Now you have to excuse me, it's... Wednesday evening, it's quite late. I'm very tired, like everybody is. But there is absolutely nothing more I want to do in this world right now than talk to no one or perhaps everyone about the uh, latest episode of Obi-Wan Kenobi that premiered earlier today on Disney+. Plus. Um, I don't want to show my cards too early, but I really think it was something special. So with that being said, I have a book, all right? Um... A lot that I wanted to talk about, you know, we'll see as it go along how long we start running. If it goes long, I apologize, but I just wanted to put that preface out there. And also, spoilers, obviously, as we always do here on Stream Fighter 2, we're just talking about these things, uh, you know, without any sort of moments of hesitation. So with that in mind, let's stop hesitating and get into the Renalysis because it is kind of sort of a recap analysis, but I feel like they go hand in hand in a project like this. You know, in order to talk about specific movements or specific items that stood out to me as a viewer and as a critic, I suppose. Uh, I'm the only person to ever call me a critic, by the way. Um, you know, it's just it's important to cover your bases and make sure we're talking about the exact same thing. So, um, an interesting talking point to sort of launch the conversation today we start with a very real-world notice that's posted to the viewer. Uh, now this, uh, you know, like I said, it's the release day and, you know, I go to work all day. Look, I don't want my life story unimportant, but everything that I'm giving you is just me. It's my interpretation of what it is I'm seeing. And I am imagining that this is a warning that's been put up there, put out there for people who may feel uh, unnerved by some of the content that's you know, in this episode, due to the recent uh, violent acts of individuals in the quote-unquote real world. Now, I don't say that as someone who's like, oh man, we're in the Matrix. I guess it's just a cheap gag. At this point in time, I don't know what else can be said, but I am going to say this. This posting, I'm imagining, has everything to do with the scenes involving the first-person perspective of the night that Order 66 was executed in the Jedi Temple. Now, I want to talk about that scene in detail when we actually get there, but I'm going to say this up front, and I want to make this very clear. I hate having to see stuff like this happen because it's indicative of a problem in the actual day-to-day real world that we inhabit. But I do appreciate this uh, notice being here because it tells me two things. Number one, that folks, you know, want to... Let someone know ahead of time, look, I could see you having a, you know, I could see this being a little much for you, and maybe if it is, take a step back, and what have you, and I don't think there's a problem in letting people know that, but it also shows me that this is here because there is something within what I'm about to watch that is here, regardless of the fact that someone may find it upsetting. Now, 
I am not here to say that someone would be someone would be unjustified in finding it upsetting. I think you would be completely justified. And and mind you, finding it upsetting is not finding anger or your discontent with the artist that put the content out there. But when I see a warning like this, it lets me know that the artistic integrity of what I'm about to watch has been maintained. Uh, you know, aside from everything that happened before, uh, they felt the need to put this warning up. And I think that is important. Um, you know, I, I feel like when you manipulate or alter your content uh, for something like that, it's, well, it's just not a... I'm not going to get into it. I'm really not. And I'm just telling you up front that uh, I obviously am not cool with anything that made this happen. But I want you to understand that I am going to praise the scenes that this warning is here for. Because if, uh, these scenes do have merit. Um, and I will praise the contributions to the narrative when it's appropriate. And, and that message that we see on screen is quite a bit different from what we're used to seeing. Uh, a long time ago, a galaxy far, far away. Far simpler times. Hey, are you a recap watcher? I always watch the recaps. I don't skip them because I feel like, even though I watch these shows tar- endlessly, I feel like, and take a bunch of notes and stuff like that, um, I always like to see how this previously on contributes to the narrative that I'm about to watch. You know, th- this isn't done arbitrarily. So I just always get a kick out of seeing what, um, you know, editors and directors want to include in their summaries, um, you know, and, and what they've put together and what they feel like are the most important beats to come out of the previous episodes or perhaps to just previous episodes. So I always watch these. And uh, I don't know. If you do, hit me up. Let me know. Our scene opens on Coruscant. The entire planet is just one big city. All right. I, I knew that I said we were going to get started, but when I said we start on Coruscant, the first thing that popped in my head was the entire planet is one big city. Folks, it is time to tear apart the lamest character in Star Wars history. And yes, I think you know who I'm talking about. And yes, we first met them in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Folks, I'm talking about Reek Olier. That's right. The lamest pilot slash squad leader in history. All right. <laughs> and, and to think that the same guy that played uh, th- this character was the man who played Del Prescott, uh, which is a fantastic role in the film Wayne's World 2. I cannot believe it's the same fucking guy. But if you don't know who Rick Ollier is, he is the leader of the Naboo Royal Navy. Uh, he's the leader of Bravo Squadron, which is indeed the Naboo fighter pilots that partake in the battle against the droid command ship at the end of The Phantom Menace. But more importantly, he is our tour guide. Every scene that this man is in, because he's the pilot in Queen Amidala's private ship as well, he is narrating or guiding us on a fucking Hollywood tour. He's like, Coruscant, the entire planet's one big city. And look, over there, that's the Senate, where we vote. Ooh, and there's the landing platform. Senator Valorum, or <laughs> Senator Palpatine is waiting for us. Let's see what he has to say. <laughs> it's just... 
He's the absolute fucking worst. I hate him so goddamn much. And I've decided to use this opportunity to take him to task forever. Uh, fucking Porkins is so much cooler than Rick Ollier. Not to mention that in the climactic battle in the stars in the Phantom Menace, when the droid control ship starts to blow it up, starts to blow up, the Naboo pilots are like, "Look, it's blowing up!" And Rick Ollier just cops to it. He's like, "Well, we didn't hit it. What the fuck, man? I don't know what's happening, but clearly it wasn't because of us. We suck." I just. Ah, uh, I don't even know, man. It's just, it is what it is. It is what it is. But we are on Coruscant. But I can't, I can't even progress. I'm still fucking hating on Rick Ollier. I can't get past him. He's the worst. Okay, seriously, though. All right, I had to take a step away, but I think I'm good now. Rick Ollier is dead to me forever. All right, let's get serious, because this, this episode deserves full attention, less jokes. It's Coruscant, and it's the year 22 BBY. Uh, I'm placing this Attack of the Clones time period. And by God, overlooking the city planet, with their eyes fixed on the apartment building housing Senator Padme Amidala, is none other than a de-aged Hayden Christensen as Anakin Skywalker with the buzz cut type maneuver. <laughs> buzz cut type maneuver! Uh, and the Padawan braid and the rat tail and all its rat tail glory. And by God, yeah, it's a de-aged Hayden Christensen, but it's pretty fucking good. I mean, this isn't having to take Mark Am- Mark Hamill, who's a much older gentleman at this point, in respect to him. It's just he's not like 29-year-old Luke Skywalker. So you got Hayden Christensen, who aged rather well to begin with, um, still in shape. You know, it's, it is what it is. Um, but it's, it's just, I mean, it's what we wanted, right? This is it. And to make it even better, a mulleted Ewan McGregor in full long-sleeve, off-white, uh, episode 2, Attack of the Clones, Garb. I mean, here's the thing. In my head, after this... Sp- because this is sparring. We'll get into it. You know what it is. You've seen the episode. That's why you're here. You're here to talk about it because you know how fucking good it is. After this sparring session, I see them heading over to that building that Anakin's looking at. Hopping into an elevator and Master Obi-Wan being like, Anakin, relax. You're sweating. Well, you, you know, now we know he's sweating not only because he's hot under the sheets because he's going to see Padme for the first time, but we just had a wicked spied session, Obi-Wan. I don't know why Hayden Christensen is, or Anakin Skywalker is from Boston in that impression. It just happened. That's the way that it is. But uh, it's exactly what we wanted. And I will never say an unkind word about however many minutes we're actually committed to this scene. Like, however many much we get of it out of this episode. Um, because it's, it's so important. And it's such, it's such a Star Wars thing in an un-Star Wars way. We're going to get into it, I promise. But I feel like I, I want to mention, there's a couple of musical stings in this episode where it's sort of like the cousin of the theme we know from the film franchise. And I think it's a great way to honor without just being like, let's just do the cool thing they did. Uh, there's, I feel like there's a small tinge of Across the Stars here, which is the love theme from Attack of the Clones as Anakin is watching out. Again, it's brand synergy. It's what we want, right? And um, I, like I said, this is a sparring session. All right, this is a memory. 
All right, but we're just brought right into it as this is the opening of our episode. We don't know it's a memory yet, but you and I, of course, we know that it is. But let's let's talk about what we have here. We have a sparring session between Master Kenobi and very much Padawan Skywalker. And I believe upon further viewing, this is the same terrace that Reva and the other younglings are training on when Darth Vader uh, besieges the Jedi Temple during the, the siege in Order 66. Um, it has the same sort of plant configuration, and it's sort of like outside. I mean, it's, it is what it is. Um, I, I think it has to be. I think that's the intent. Why, you know, why, why, if it's not important, if it's not the same one? Um, they do, you know, they trade some Master and Padawan barbs at one another, ignite their sabers, and the camera, as the, uh, the two Jedi circle one another, we go to a bird's eye view sh- uh, perspective shot above them, and the... The mural, it, it, look, the floor is a giant eyeball, all right? And I don't say that to sound stupid or make a joke. I mean, look at it. It's an, it's an eyeball, okay? It's designed, you know, the fucking Jedi didn't paint an eyeball onto it, but the design elements inv- evoke a fucking eyeball because we are going to spend this entire episode as viewers peering back through history and watching this moment in time which will tell us everything that we need to know about Darth Vader in the present. And I think this, what we're also watching, is the answer to uh, something that ties in to A New Hope as well. And we will get there when it pops up. But I wanted to you know, specifically mention the eyeball. As I'm sure, th- you know, this isn't news to anyone, okay? I'm not some sort of genius. I'm just saying. It's, you know, point it out if you didn't see it, but it's there, I promise, all right? This isn't some secret fucking Tyler Durden formula that I've uncovered. It's just what they intended, and it's fucking awesome. All right. Now, what we have here is a framing device, okay? Because as the session goes on, we cut immediately to Darth Vader in his suit, in the present, watching... Um, as if he's the one who's watching the duel through the, the floor, if you will. Or, this is clearly his memory. And this sparring session is going to be used as a framing device. And ever since Star Wars has made the transition to TV, they've been able to take a little bit more risks with their storytelling. Now, we can argue back and forth all you want about Mandalorian, Book of Boba Fett, stuff like that, and that's fine. The fact that we have the content makes me happy as a pig and shit. But uh, Book of Boba Fett, for better or worse, definitely dove into using flashbacks as a narrative device. Watch any of the nine Star Wars films. There are only a handful of instances where um, scenes in different locations are even cross-cut with one another. You know, we... There is not a whole lot of storytelling techniques in the directing like I don't know what the technical term might be and I'm feeling really stupid sort of hanging out here but you know the framing device uh messing with the flow of time or telling things out of sequence like you you don't get that in Star Wars stars is your Star Wars is your left to right Saturday matinee serial I know it's the old expression everybody knows the story that's what George Lucas did blah 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 I'm just repeating the narrative at this point but because that has been the presentation model for these theatrical releases, now that we're on TV, we get to play a little bit. And I think it opens... It's so interesting because, especially with these prequel characters, you know, we're... I, I like the prequels, okay? This is not a dig, but they're very static, sort of, in a way, 
I don't know. Like, I, I, it's just there's not a lot to it except for what you're looking at is what you need to see, and that's that's it. That that's fine. Uh, you're not getting any flat. Not that a flashback is some sort of great fucking narrative technique that's just been invented. But uh, you know, you look at something like Pulp Fiction, which is a, a film that's told out of sequential order, but it's sort of in you know it's the order that I guess the director intended it needed to be, uh, whether you agree or not. But that doesn't happen in Star Wars until we got the TV. So that's my whole point. And I, I'm just glad that they're able to do something like this. On the bridge, though, uh, Reva lets Vader know that they've tracked uh, the Rebels, even though they're not the Rebels, but hey, they might as well be the Rebels, to Jabim. Uh, and that's where the tracking beacon is, and that's where they've situated. And uh, Vader's pleased, and he makes Reva the Grand Inquisitor. He makes her kneel, and they put a little uh, uh, Hand of the King badge on her. It's pretty cool. Now, our heroes arrive on Shabim, uh, and like I said, these folks are definitely going to probably evolve into what would become like early rebellion. They definitely have that sort of ragtag group of freedom fighters vibe to them. Uh, you know, they're currently the path, as they've been known as. And hey, look, Haja from episode two, I believe it was, has made his way here as well. Apparently, after he had his little encounter with the Inquisitors, he became a fugitive, and he bailed to get some help as well. So that's kind of cool. Now, Roken lets Obi-Wan know that the refugees who are here on planet have been waiting for their mission to be successful. Uh, and they, they put their own safety on hold so Leia could be rescued. So it's only right at this point in time, we get these refugees to a new safe planet or a safe house, if you will. And then as soon as that's completed, Leia will get to Alderaan. And that sounds pretty clean and fair to uh, Mr. Kenobi as well. Now we do another cut, Jesus, to Vader on the bridge of his Star Destroyer staring into hyperspace because they're traveling through hyperspace and he's staring at the hole in time and space that they're traveling through. I mean, I don't know any other way to put it. We all know what Star Wars is. We all know what I'm talking about. But it's this great... It evokes this fantastic imagery of him like peering through space and time, reliving his past. It's almost like, and you know, it, at the end of this, we'll get to what I feel like this, uh, the point of this sparring session even represents or what it teaches Vader that he needed to know about himself. But it's like almost as if he's been reliving this sparring session in his mind on infinite loop since he got put in this suit. I don't know, it feels like he's often called upon this memory to power him through, to, uh, to perhaps find that last clue that he didn't understand or that last piece of information that made it all click. Um, and, and I think that will reveal itself as we go through the sparring session, but damn, this is a really cool fucking shot, and his face mask also looks fantastic here as well. I don't know if it's just the lighting, a little bit of extra gloss. I know that the you know face mask was redesigned for the show. Uh, you know They made a new mold of it, and it's not like they fucking added a mustache or something, but it's a different piece of what have you, so it's a different fucking mask, and it looks badass. It might not have the same bump in the same spot, but I'm, I mean, I'm not here for that. It just looks fucking cool. Now, Vader indicates to Reva that they need to blockade the rebels in their mountain lair. Um, and Reva's like, well, you know, you blockade them in there and, you know, they can survive for days with the food they have in there and stuff like that. Uh, but Vader puts her at ease. 
and lets her know that they only need to break Kenobi, not the rest of them. Now, at this point in time, in the stronghold, the evil Lola the droid, who we know is only evil because Reva put a tracking beacon slash uh, restraining bolt on her, you know, and what have you. Uh, unfortunately, though, with Lola under control of the Empire, she cuts the controls to the docking bay doors. And uh, the large transport ships that they have at their disposal are now landlocked, if you will. So we are indeed boxed in. Some fun little details here about uh, what the path has in their storage. Obi-Wan is sort of getting the lay of the land and taking inventory and what have you. And just sitting right there straight for anyone to have access to uh, is a box of lightsabers from Jedi who are no longer there to claim them. Interesting. And it's interesting, too, because... You know, Obi-Wan walks past these, and he looks into this box, and he sees, you know, decades and decades of dedication. I mean, you know, I'm a nerd. I've read comics about how you build a saber and how you get the crystal, and, you know, not to mention what Sith have to do to get a red one, for Christ's sakes. But it's like, you know, what you're looking at are the, you know, if you want to think about it in real life terms, I suppose you could think of it as like a box of, of metals for like service or something like that. Uh, room full of trophies. Like a, a, it's indicative of a life's work. Whether a positive, negative, or neutral, it's indicative of a person's life's work. And here they are, like, I don't know, like my fucking sock drawer. And uh, I thought that was another potent moment for this Obi Wan character. I talked briefly about how. It seemed like Obi-Wan sort of had this romantic sort of... Like, the the time period between 3 and 4 was sort of romanticized. And Obi-Wan, while he lived a shitty existence, you know, he he wasn't in the thick of the Rebellion-era war. He was always sitting out on the sidelines. Now, he had, you know, he contributed to the war effort and the Clone Wars. My point is, is that, you know, this shows us that Obi-Wan Kenobi did indeed see the Empire at its highest peak of power and how great he had failed the galaxy and how great the Jedi had failed the galaxy. And it was important that Obi-Wan didn't get to sit on that rock all the time thinking, oh, it's okay, we have the boy. He has a cock, and therefore he'll be able to defeat Darth Vader. You know, silly, but it is what it is. He does get himself a sweet robe as well. I didn't know what color it is. I didn't know. I don't know why it came out that way. I don't know what color it is. It was very colorblind. But it looked kind of like, almost like dark gray, brown. I don't know if that makes sense or if those are even real colors. Speaking of wardrobes, uh, you kind of take a, got a good look at Princess Leia here. And she's absolutely cosplaying as the Attack of the Clones Padme from the battle on Geonosis at the end. But without the shirt tear, okay? Yes, of course. But it's fun. I love these little callbacks that they've had to Padme and Leia. Uh, It's a lot of fun, and it really just deepens that fantastic character that, unfortunately, always got a little short-sighted. Well, now we have all sorts of tales of Leia uh, to, to, to watch at our leisure moving forward. It's a good feeling to have, I suppose. Now, Obi Wan knows that Darth Vader does not have the patience to wait for them to die in this hole. That's not why Vader has, you know, brought his forces to this planet. And they're sort of strategizing here. Um, And, 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 you know, I want to make it very clear that while the Empire is here to cleanse this sect of quote-unquote rebels or force-sensitive individuals or whatever, any way you want to look at it, I mean, this is just 
Anakin chasing after Obi-Wan so he can win that fight that he's never won. And I don't want to oversimplify it. There's so much more to it, but everything else is kind of window dressing. And I love that Obi-Wan realizes that. And obviously Vader realizes it as we sort of relive his memories. Speaking of which, back on Coruscant in the year 22 BBY, I heard the entire planet is one big city. (laughs) But during the sparring session, Anakin becomes more aggressive. Uh, Obi-Wan gives him some advice. He says a Jedi's goal is to defend life, not to take it. To which Hayden, uh, to which Anakin replies, this is where the fun begins. No, he says, mercy doesn't defeat an enemy master. And there's amazing choreography. This fight is just fucking fantastic. And again, it's a sparring session. It's not a full-on fight. Uh, and, and I just love how these guys are still able to reproduce the Lucasian, I don't have a better word, the, the, the Lucas feel of this dialogue, but this dialogue is so much better. All right, sorry, George, it is, but they're still able to deliver it sounding as if George wrote it. They, they have that elegant, I don't know about the elegant, they have that romanticized way of speaking. It's the Jedi, it's the high era of the Republic, you know, that whole thing. Uh, but they're doing it with really well, with much better written dialogue this time. So good for you guys finally getting your due. Um, we cut back, though, after Anakin says, uh, mercy doesn't defeat an enemy. And Vader is indeed here. He's watching the planet come into full view and orders launch the attack. Uh, and the Anakin Skywalker character in the past uh, didn't take... so. It's a, The last line being, Mercy doesn't defeat an enemy master, is the last line we have in the, uh, the flashback. It's because we're about to see now, illustrated for us, how Anakin interprets Mercy doesn't defeat an enemy. Uh, he's launching the attack right away. Uh, I mean, you get it, all right? You get it. At least I hope you do. Now, Obi-Wan is in full General Kenobi mode. And he's planning strategy with the leaders and um, basically comes up with a good one. Stall. <laughs> uh, but, you know, really, folks, that's that's what you have to do. Uh, but, of course, Obi-Wan gussies it up and makes it sound really nice. You know, he, makes, he lets us know that uh, it's not necessarily about winning this battle. It's about surviving this battle. Now, to prepare for this imminent siege, our rebels do work together, and we get a nice sort of like putting things together montage. I noticed a couple of fun details I wanted to point out. There is a sweet astromech droid. Like, well, he's got a, he's got a, I don't know, like an astromech skull dome. And it looks like it's basically that on a traffic cone. And I thought that was pretty cool. He's sort of setting up a barricade on the door. And I also believe, this is a deep cut, that I spotted future resistance pilot Ello Asti uh, here on screen for a brief moment. Either that, it's either Ello Asti or it's some some sort of like alien brethren of his. Uh, you might recognize this guy from dying uh, during the Battle of Starkiller Base and being like, rawr, rawr, and then his ship blows up. But I believe, famously named uh, by uh, legendary question mark director J.J. Abrams, uh, named this guy Ello Asti after the Beastie Boys album. Hello, Nasty. And if you don't know that J.J. Abrams loves the Beastie Boys, just watch Star Trek. So, anywho, 
Uh, speaking of great music, the music is on point during this like siege montage. You know, it's the the prep battle preparations are cross cut between uh, Reva coming down to lead the assault. Uh, the stormtroopers get all set up and in position. It's really cool. Uh, I'm pumped. How about you? Uh, we are not. Well, fine. How about this? Reva yells, "Light them up!" And they fucking go to town trying to blow this door apart. And why is it cool she says light him up? Well, a couple things. One, it sounds cool. Number one, it's also such an un-imperial officer way of issuing a command. You know, if this was the original trilogy and they were all the stuffed shirt British guys, it'd be like, file away. Nah, Reva says light him up. And uh, I don't know. I thought that was kind of cool. Now, uh, this strategy from the Rebels uh, of waiting to see what happens is clearly not working. And we get a fun little exchange between Roken and Haja arguing. And, uh, you know, Disney, uh, you know, I I would watch more of that. Just putting that out there for the future. (laughs) Uh, But specifically what they're arguing about is that Roken, like, had an hour to fix the door. That's what Obi-Wan, he's like, Obi-Wan's like, how much time do you need? Roken's like, I don't know, like four hours. Obi-Wan's like, you have one. <laughs> uh, it's fun stuff. But, um, you know, that's, that's why Hosh is upset. Uh, Roken's one-hour job didn't get things done. And did you really expect it to? I mean, dude said he needed four hours. Give him, give him a fucking break here. But Princess Leia lets us know she's here to help, and she needs a ladder. And I was like... Wait, if Leia climbs a ladder, are we going to have ourselves an Obi-Wan, Darth Vader, SummerSlam-style custody of Leia ladder match? Yeah, I'd pay for that too. Anywho, Roken's like, "Uh, what? Leia, I don't have time to play games. And Leia's like, I can help. And Roken looks at Obi-Wan kind of like, hey, we just tell her to back off. And Obi-Wan's like, you trust me, I trust her. She knows what she's doing. It's fucking awesome. Um, but the reason what she can do to help is if you can get the, get her on a ladder, she can climb into the little server room because it has a little uh, port entrance on it. And I love seeing server rooms in Star Wars, by the way. Just a room full of lots of fucking Cat5 cable, and she's got to fix the one that, you know, runs the door to oversimplify it and make it seem funny when it's really actually a pretty cool setup and scenario. Uh, Obi-Wan, though, asks Haja to watch over Leia as she's in there trying to fix things because uh, he doesn't tell him why, but he has an, Obi-Wan has an incoming transmission. Looks like someone's left him a space voicemail. And it is indeed a space voicemail from Bail Organa. And Bail is freaking out. He's really trying hard to keep from blowing their cover. But, uh, you know, obviously he's, he's nervous. But, you know, because he's unable to speak to Obi-Wan directly and he hasn't been able to get a hold of him, which means Obi-Wan's service just must have came in. And, you know, I'm making jokes about it. They don't need to explain it to me. I get it. Whatever it is, I get it, and it's fine. Uh, but Obi-Wan, you know, Bail Organis, basically, he, he, you know, he does lay out a plan, though. He says he hasn't heard from him and it's making him worried. If it goes much longer and he doesn't hear from him, he will go to Tatooine and help Owen with the boy. You know, and while he's obviously holding back his emotion and trying not to give too much away in case this message is intercepted, it's really cool because it goes to show that, I don't know, I feel like there's a deeper thing here. Like, obviously, Bail Organa loves Leia's his daughter, etc., but he's also, like, will he also willing to know that if 
something were to happen to Leia and it's too late and there's nothing that can be done, the only thing he can do is move forward and protect, you know, keep the mission going because that's all we have now. Like, if if I don't, you know, I lost the you know the one that I loved, you know, we're already down one. Like we have to protect the one, or it's that's it, that's it for everybody. So I don't know. It was just an interesting thing. That's how I interpret it anyway. If it was, if I'm over, you know, reading too much into it, that's fine. You know, I like watching this show, so I'll enjoy it my way. But uh, as they're prepping. There's one last uh, conversation that has to happen because this episode isn't going to end well for everyone. Tala tells Obi-Wan the story of when she decided to flip from the Empire. And it's a story about rounding up Force-sensitive children and uh, watching them be slaughtered. So I absolutely understand where she's coming from. Uh, and again, I don't want to oversimplify it, but what she, re- she really she delivers one sort of final talking point to Obi-Wan. Uh, and it's basically the plot. And, that, and that's okay. She says, some things you can't forget, but you can fight to make them better. Which is pretty much the whole point of the show for Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, the breach is imminent, however, and uh, the battle lines are drawn. Uh, so much, in fact, that uh, I should point out, Roken has a bowcaster, and it's fucking fantastic. But it's clear that this stronghold is not going to last much longer. But being the general and the boss that he is, Obi-Wan Kenobi has a plan. General Kenobi's plot is to call for negotiations with the third sister. And so Obi-Wan goes to the door, as does Reva, and they sort of have a through-the-door conversation, which sounds like a gag, but it's not. Okay? And I it's not done poorly. It just it's I realize it sounds like a gag. Okay? Now keep in mind, folks, that Obi-Wan's force battery has basically been recharging for all of these episodes. And Obi-Wan's obviously able to sense Reva's presence now, and he's sort of able to, you know, she's sort of leaking emotion right now. She's sweating bullets, like, but sweating her emotions. She's wearing her emotions on her sleeve at this point uh, because she's very close to her goal. And Obi-Wan decides to take a tech, uses to his tactical advantage, and he starts to use her feelings to interpret her motivations. Now, he enhances this. By during this interrogation or this negotiation, the negotiations was short, uh, by pushing her buttons. And, you know, it's kind of like the old ask, just ask questions and she'll keep talking sort of gag. But uh, obviously it's not that. But he starts really asking the right questions and pushing the right buttons and getting her to think about what he needs. So uh, he's interrogating her so he can suck the thoughts out of her mind and use them to his advantage. And I was thinking about that because that's, that's bluntly what he's doing. And there are a couple of characters. I made a list, uh, a short list of a few characters in Star Wars that I know are really good at that technique. Darth Sidious, Darth Vader, and Kylo Ren. So, to me, this brings an interesting subplot up to this episode. So, we're still following this over our arc about Anakin's final lesson, or Vader's final lesson, and his flashbacks, etc., etc., okay? But what we're dealing with here is a subplot of two points. Uh, One, we're getting Reva's full origin, finally, and, and it's extremely important, and we'll get into that. But also, it should not be overlooked that Obi-Wan Kenobi 
is absolutely pointing Reva like a gun at Darth Vader. He is pulling a Darth Sidious here. He is seducing the young Padawan, which sounds horrendous when you say it out loud. Uh, but Obi-Wan's not a priest, so I think we're safe, okay? But but that's literally what he is doing here, all right? Um, and granted, she is definitely already leaning that way as well, you know? He's just here to give her the old force push out the door. But it's a fascinating role reversal from the prequels, seeing Obi-Wan as the seductor as opposed to Darth Sidious. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating concept to think that Obi-Wan would do this, but he's not doing this like it's, you know, it, it is what it is. He's not trying to convince her to overthrow the galaxy. Obviously, the circumstances are different. The end game is different. It's for the, you know, the right reasons to do it. But, you know, the old adage of the Jedi and the Sith are just one and the same. They just, you know, have a different goal, but they do the same types of shit to get there. I think this goes to really reiterate that. And I think that's a cool sort of post-Lucas Star Wars thing that gets put out there. And I kind of like that a lot. It's one of the few post-Lucas things I really get into full bore. So, oh well. But Obi-Wan puts together through her memories that she was there in the Jedi Temple the night that Order 66 took place. And when he finally deduces this fact, uh, Reva says something, okay? She says, stop. And for once, it's not Reva throwing around an order. And it's honestly not even Reva the person asking him not to talk about it anymore or go any further. It's a plea. Like, please, I'm begging you, don't. And it's a fantastic line delivery, and it's a good choice. I appreciate that. But uh, for her, though, even though this is a frightening, haunting thing to talk about, uh, she spills it all, man. She gives the full origin. Now, why, you know, you got, I could see somebody out there being like, well, this is stupid. You know, she's just telling him everything. What, she wouldn't do that. And I'm like, well, dude, her entire life since that night of Order 66, I mean, she's been waiting to tell someone this story, right? I mean, she's been carrying it inside of her her entire life and she's literally talking to the one person in the galaxy uh, that might actually get it all right uh so i don't care if she's not a human technically i'm sure she is but it's like if there's some sort of crazy star wars word for like there's humans and then there's i don't know humos humox like i don't know like she's a humanoid species uh and so I'm going to say that she's human. And, and that's what human, that's how humans are. We seek comfort. We seek the ability to clear, to, to, to clear our heads, to get it off our chest. And uh, like I said, this is the only opportunity she's ever had to do it. I'm surprised she didn't start telling him everything. Um, because I feel like that's got to be such a relief to a person, evil or what have you, you know, whatever. It is what it is. Maybe I'm overthinking it, but it's still very interesting to me. But uh, she was in the temple during uh, Order 66, so we should probably talk about some lovely fan service that we're given. You know, my favorite shot of Episode 3 in general is when Vader and the clone troopers march up the steps of the Jedi Temple, and then they march inside, and Anakin's 
cloak sort of billows behind him and they all kind of march and goose step. Now, that's not a cool thing in real life, but the evoking that imagery, I think, shows how far Anakin's fallen from the dark side. And they replicate that uh, uh, bird's eye view shot. And we actually get to see that shot recreated not only from top to bottom a couple times in this scene, but we get to see Anakin and the clone troopers enter from a first-person perspective because we see Reva's point of view as that moment happens. And Hayden's back in uniform. It's just, it's, I mean, this is connective tissue to the prequels that Star Wars sort of lacks as an overall cohesive whole. So getting to live in that time frame even more is just a fantastic thing for me. I talked to Ad Nauseam about it in the introduction to our first episode before we lo- when we launched the series. So I hope you know what it is that I'm talking about. Uh, but Darth Vader out of the suit here looks fantastic. He looks scary as fuck too, in, in a sense that, you know, I'm probably uh, going to die if I see this dude rushing at me. Uh, not scary to sense that his like skulls on fire or something like that or some sort of ridiculous nonsense. Uh, but this scene is important to me as a viewer and it's important to me uh, and it represents, you know, some crazy ass shit. And unfortunately, I got to think this is why we're getting that content warning that I talked about earlier. Um, you know, because we do get to see Anakin literally stabbing and slicing the younglings, which is a different group of younglings than we got in episode three. Uh, and here's the thing, all right? We got the implication in episode three, and we know that Anakin did what he did and killed the younglings in the, the Jedi uh, council room, and it all happened off camera, though. But getting to see no suit Darth Vader. And it is played by Hayden Christensen, and he's de-aged, and it looks just like he did in episode three, because it's easier to get him with the longer hair without the buzz cut, and he's got the, he gets to wear the cloak too. So shit, they may not even de age Well, I'm sure they de-aged him a little bit, but uh, uh, seeing him actually kill the children in front of in front of the camera, it's narrative connective tissue that I didn't know I needed, and I'm glad that they chose to keep it in. And uh, I absolutely understand where they're coming from, though. How that might not be something that someone in the real world might not be ready to see. So I get it. I get it, I get it. And I hope you can understand while well, I'm happy that they included this because, I, I, like I said, it's that connective narrative tissue that I didn't know I needed to restate it verbatim, but it just enhances knowing that, uh, you know, Darth Vader did some cruel shit. Because, you know, I liked Anakin Skywalker, so, you know, it, it sort of goes a long way to turn him heel, if you will, to use an old wrestling phrase. <laughs> oh, hell. Uh, oh, hey, but maybe I should stop laughing because uh, we should talk about how Reva says that, uh, you know, during during the battle, uh, you know, it looked like she took a hit. So she laid there. She hid with the bodies. She laid there until everyone was gone. She laid there and felt the bodies grow cold. And then this is when Obi-Wan realizes, you're not serving him, are you? You're hunting him. Reva blames Obi-Wan, though, just as much for not saving them. He was your Padawan. Where were you to save us? Uh, you know, you can't beat him by yourself. You don't know what I've done by myself. Reva's had enough of this, and she just slices the door right the fuck open. Obi-Wan immediately counters with a force push, uh, pushing her through the troops. Uh, and it looks so fucking cool the way they part like the Red Sea. Uh, and a firefight breaks out. And... Uh, 
it's a full-scale invasion of the the cave area where the rebels in quotes were hiding out we get some fantastic shots of obi-wan blocking blaster bolts putting his whole fucking body into it he does a couple of full kick swings like he's swinging a goddamn baseball bat to deflect these blasts and i i we get in a couple of them from a couple different angles i hope you know what i'm talking about i'm not trying to make fun of it it was fucking fantastic i loved it um, but it's a full-blown firefight, and, and there's some really great directing here and camera movement that makes us feel like we're in these caves in a claustrophobic environment. It's chaotic, and it should be, uh, should be spoken about in high regard. The Empire advances further inward, and it's just starting to feel like it might be time for the sacrifice play in terms of what the screenplay is going to do. But Tala is shot. She tells Ben to get the rest of them out of here, and she has a thermal detonator. And I'm not, this is a really well shot scene. Great, great musical cues, great emotional beats, and what have you. Um, you know, I don't mean to breeze through it. There's fantastic stuff where um, Tala knows that she's sort of bleeding out, and Ned B, uh, the droid, the, the, you know, the big iron giant type droid, is defending her with a blaster, and he's pretty much done for, and he just sort of lays in front of her to literally be a fucking shield as his programming and power dies down and he dies. Uh, you know, forming a, a, forming a cocoon, no, but forming a shield above her. Um, it's a no-win situation. She, she looks at Ben. She pulls out the thermal detonator. She arms it. She uses a blaster to, shut the, to seal the doors. And as the door shuts, she, sa- she says calmly, may the force be with you. And then... You know, Reva pulls out the Empire, massive thermal detonator explosion, and, you know, that's a wrap on Tala. Um, You know, the stakes needed to be raised here in this show. Um, A lot of the Star Wars TV shows have had some low stakes, and while we know that most of our characters here are bulletproof due to plot armor, which I totally understand, um... Having a nice, impactful character death, character death is a good thing. And honestly, you know, killing characters and motivate other characters, what have you. But I do think that losing this type of person uh, who Leia has been clamoring on to and holding on to and, and going to uh, whenever her character is not instructed to do something, it's like, you know, uh, she's running around with Tala whenever she's not with Obi-Wan. So, you know, I think this will motivate that character. And it's at this point that hope seems all lost. But Darth Vader orders Reva to stand down, telling her, Kenobi is already ours. That was kind of a shitty Darth Vader impression, I'm sorry. But it's getting pretty late in the day. Oh, third sister, make me some coffee. <laughs> what? No coffee. Is it safe? Is it all right? I am going to... Stop. Back on Coruscant now. <laughs> I hear the entire planet is one big city. In the year 22, uh, 22 years before the Battle of Yavin, you know, it's our framing device again. The choreography here is so well done and thought out. And, and the best way I can describe it is that it's done to appear as if it's almost like a rough draft uh, as to what we would get in the battle sequence, the duel of the hero, or battle of the heroes in Revenge of the Sith. It's a fantastic way to call back to that iconic scene that we all know and love without being ridiculous and having them do just the exact same thing. And, and you know, in this fight, Anakin is clearly in control to the point where he says, 
uh, there's no there's no way out, Master. And it's kind of like not only is Anakin in the past saying that, but that's what Vader is saying now. Obi-Wan and Anakin's sabers are locked, but Anakin is above Obi-Wan with the high ground, if you will, and he starts doing uh, something we've seen before in Star Wars. He's like pounding on Obi-Wan with his saber, as if his uh, Anakin's own lightsaber is like a hammer motion, like he's beating a spike into the ground. It's uh, what Luke does to Vader in Jedi right before he cuts his hand off. And as Anakin has Obi-Wan in uh, the finishing position, he says, Admit you're beaten. Cut to the present. But it's Obi-Wan now. Is he the one reliving the memory now? I don't know. But I think that uh, he may be calling upon some memories here uh, based on the strategy that he outlines and the weaknesses that he knows that Anakin has. He says it's over to Roken. And Roken freaks out like, no, it's not over. We can still survive this. And it's like, no, Obi-Wan's not talking about the struggle that's over. But the literal conflict that they are in right now needs to subside. Because this is a no-win situation, etc., etc. But it appears that he has a gambit. He has a move. He has a game to put it. Well, he's already put the game in motion. He's got a few more chess pieces to move around. Okay, so he gives his belongings, that being like his lightsaber. I think he may have had a black. I don't know if he had a blaster or not. And his like cell phone, basically, or his communication device that he was using to reach out to Bail Organa with. He gives it to Haja and he asks Haja to keep an eye on Leia. And, you know, everyone's like, well, what? You're going to go fight a war without your weapons? And he's like, there are other ways to fight. So he pulls what I'm calling the Wardlow of Steel. Uh, you know, this is the thing that Warlow just did in AEW, which he admitted he stole from Man of Steel. Because Obi-Wan Kenobi surrenders to Reva. She says, inform Lord Vader, Kenobi is ours. But I really get the feeling like at this point, even she is just about fed up with this shit. It's a really interesting choice the way she delivers it. My impression wasn't really very indicative of her actual delivery, and I apologize for that. But I don't know, it's almost like, you know, I don't know. I think if you listen to that line in particular, you'll get what I'm trying to dig at. But it's too late. I'm going to move on to the next point I want to um, want to make. So Obi-Wan's in handcuffs on his knees in front of her. And, uh, you know, after she says, inform Lord Vader, Kenobi is ours. Obi-Wan just, you know, he stares at her and he pulls a boss move. He says, you're not bringing me to him. I'm bringing him to you again. Going for that Darth Sidious seduction shit. And I'm not, you know, I'm laughing as I say it, but it's not a joke. He's playing off of exactly what she wants, and he's playing into her emotional state, feeding her exactly what he can in order to weaponize her. It's fascinating, and it's literally no different from what Palpatine did to Anakin. And it's a, that's a choice I don't have a problem with, mind you. But I do hope it gets touched upon in our next episode. It may or may not. I don't know. Um... You know, and and I may, you know, you may not believe any of what I'm saying, but allow me to give you this sort of big piece, final sort of say on the matter, okay? He says to her, we could end this together. Implying a sort of Jedi rule of two, rule of two, excuse me, indicating they have to be together to do it, much like the Sith have the rule of two. 
But he's saying we can accomplish an absolute, meaning we can end this and only the Sith steal an absolute. And the two of us will be the ones controlling the outcome, which is exactly what Sidious proposed to Anakin. I will do what you need to do. Excuse me. I will give you what you need, the power to protect individuals from death. And you and I will bend the galaxy in the way that we best see fit. It is exactly what Obi-Wan is asking Revit to do, and I am here for it. It's pretty cool. It's fascinating. She uh, she may be buying into it. We don't really know at this point. But she sort of leans in and says, What makes you think he won't see it coming? And then Obi-Wan, in an even more boss delivery, says, Because... All he'll see is me. And I love it. Reva sends him to his fate. The She instructs the stormtroopers to take him into the cave and wait for Lord Vader. Back on Coruscant, 22 years before the Battle of Yavin, I hear the entire city is one big planet. Uh, it's exactly where we left off with Anakin in the high ground. He goes for a kill shot, but Obi-Wan gets free, and Anakin pursues him across their sparring area. Now, this is a personal indulgence, but right here, Anakin Skywalker, uh, if this was wrestling, hits his finishing maneuver, okay? I can't explain exactly what it is he does, but he starts doing it. I clocked it at 26 minutes and 14 seconds. He does this exact same fucking spin maneuver in Revenge of the Sith. It's a boss move with unnecessary theatrics and a little bit of behind-the-back twirl action put in uh, for good measure. But it makes the lightsaber duel all that much better. And uh, I just, I had to point it out. But Anakin swats away Obi-Wan's lightsaber. And he says, your weapon's gone. It's over. And Obi-Wan sort of, you know, gives him the old, mm-mm, student. He's like, you'll need for victory, Anakin. It blinds you. And Anakin Skywalker sort of plays it off like he's confused. But... Hayden's really bringing it with the acting here. And you can see that even though he's playing it like he's confused, he knows exactly what Obi-Wan's talking about. He knows that he feels a desire to be victorious no matter what. You know, the Jedi might be there to protect some locals from bandits. Okay, they're supposed to protect the locals from bandits. But Anakin's not satisfied unless he claims victory over the bandits. Let's just take them out, Master. We kill them, we win. It's over. They're safe, aren't they? And uh, as much as Anakin doesn't want to admit it, even here at the age of 19 or whatever, he is clearly in tune with how he feels about things. Back to the present, uh, we're going to see this start playing out. And again, it, the cross-cutting mechanic is fantastic. Vader marches into the base and tells Reva, I will bring him in myself. Hilarious cut. Smash cut to Obi-Wan. Uh, well, Obi-Wan's shadow beating up the stormtroopers that were guarding him. It's clear now that he was never really their captive. And, uh, you know, it's a great gag. He uses the blaster, I think, once, and then he just tosses it on the way back. You know, like, it's so uncivilized. Um, back in the rebel stronghold, if you will. Don't know what else to call it. Uh, Princess Leia gets the restraining bolt off of Lola, the droid. They work together and they fix the hangar door. Uh, they replicate the shot of Vader walking into the cave like it's the shot of him walking into the Jedi Temple during Order 66. He walks in and is surrounded by fallen uh, stormtroopers, whereas during Order 66 they were fallen clone troopers. It's fucking beautiful. Obi-Wan gets back to the Rebels and is basically like, well, 
it's time to go. And there's a really sad moment where the, the victorious Princess Leia emerges from the server room uh, and asks where Tala is. And, you know, Obi-Wan just kind of, you know, puts his hand on her and is like, I, I, I. but uh, yeah, she's gone. Uh, Haja, in this all this confusion, uh, drops Obi-Wan's communications device and someone steps on it and it's like, fuck it, we got to get the hell out of here. Let's get to the transport. We then cut to Darth Vader, present day, in the suit, in the Rebel hideout, walking. And the ship, that being the ship of the Rebels, is leaving. And folks, it's the ship scene. You've seen it. That's why you're listening to this. Vader rips the fucking transport out of the sky. And it's good that he strains. The straining is important. All right? He's super powerful, but he's not, you know... (laughs) Well, he should be. No, that's a gag. But, you know, we know. We know he's weakened, super powerful. He's especially pissed off here, etc., etc. Now, the ship is leaving, and he rips the ship down from the sky, and he rips this fucker apart. And wouldn't you know, uh, the strain is clearly there. He's putting on a flashy show about this. He's rageful. He's pissed. He's yelling. I think the closed caption even says, Vader roars at one point. And that's important. Vader is putting all into this flashy show of aggression and victory to the point that when the true ship that has everybody on it blasts off right next to him, he's fucking exhausted. In this moment, within the force, and you know, he's even breathing, he's breathing harder. I mean, this is exactly what Obi-Wan in the past was talking about, his desire to be victorious. He could have gone in, got what he needed, and won his little personal war. But he had to run in here with his big dick action. Back on Coruscant, 22 years before the Battle of Yavin, and hey, I heard the entire planet is one big city. Obi-Wan fights back against Anakin without his lightsaber, eventually gets the upper hand and fucking uses the force to yank Anakin's lightsaber right the hell out of his hands. And that's the end of the sparring session. Obi-Wan's won. Says, Anakin, you'll need to prove yourself as your undoing. Until you overcome it, a Padawan you will still be. Anakin nods in understanding, and they walk away towards a certain war-torn future. But yet, still at this moment in time, brothers in arms. Cutting back to the present, in tight on Vader's face. And this is it. This is the whole point that I've been getting to the entire time. I don't know if Obi-Wan and Vader are going to fight another time. I don't know if we're going to get one more fight in episode six. And everyone's sort of been hanging on the, when we last met, I was but the learner, now I am the master. So let's assume that the episode three fight that we saw where Obi-Wan gets burned is the last time they met. This is what Vader is talking about. Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker never really learned that lesson that Obi-Wan was trying to teach him. You need to win and to prove yourself and who you are is your undoing. And until you overcome that, you will always be a Padawan. Period. Sorry, that P probably popped because I said period really loud. So, if Darth Vader, even though he's done what he's done in his life, still believes this lesson to be true, something he's never actually overcome, if he's being true to himself, then he has to internally believe that he is still a Padawan to Obi-Wan. 
he still has something to learn. He never got Obi-Wan's final lesson. There's still one thing out there he never did master. And even though he beat Obi-Wan's ass in Episode 3, he's still the Padawan. He shouldn't have toyed with him, tried to burn him, and all that shit. This is the one lesson Vader has never learned. This is his revelation in this entire program, I believe. And uh, you may not believe me. You may not believe my theory. You may not believe my interpretation. And that's fine, too. But allow me to give you one piece of evidence that I think is rather large, aided by the fact that it occurs after we finally learn Obi-Wan's lesson from the sparring session, and Vader remembers it in this specific moment, knowing that this is the last time having to prove myself will be my undoing because Reva is here. And she tries to get the upper hand on him, man, but I mean, come on. At this point, Vader is not only furious that they got away, furious that Obi-Wan is still his master in his head, and um, not furious, you know, just enraged and empowered with the Force that he has to still prove himself in some way, somehow. But here's the thing. If he goes about continuing trying to prove himself, all it does is prove that Obi-Wan is still right. And I think Darth Vader not having to prove himself is what this entire next battle sequence is about. So it is a battle between Reva and Darth Vader. She's finally here to get her vengeance, to reveal her true intentions, and I mean, it absolutely delivers. So let's get into some concrete examples of the theory and the point that I'm trying to prove, okay? She immediately tries to slash Vader, and like I said, he stops her using the Force and admits he was wise to use you against me. So he doesn't have to be right in this situation. He can cop to the fact that, you know what, Obi-Wan? Not bad. Not a bad move indeed. And I can't do the fighting justice, but here's the evidence I'm trying to present I can say, in my opinion, this is the most frighteningly powerful Darth Vader has ever appeared, including that badass scene in Rogue One where he kills a fool, all right? And it's the only time that we've ever seen Darth Vader fight, and I'm doing the finger quotes thing here, it's the only time we've ever seen Darth Vader fight when he's at peace. Now, I just got done. You know, he's rageful, etc., etc. But Vader, Vader's rage is because he is ready to finally prove that Obi-Wan is no longer the master and that he has himself under control and he has mastered this final lesson. Now, he's still a Sith Lord and he's raging with dark side nonsense, but he's at peace the most that he possibly can be. And uh, evidence I'm using to prove that point is he fuse he's on defense in this fight the entire time. Uh, but he's also never on the defense at all, <laughs> okay? He beats the shit out of Reva without ever getting on offense, and he's barely breaking a sweat, okay? Um, he uses force foo, for Christ's sakes. I don't know what else to call it. Reva's all up at him with her lightsaber, and he's just using the force to dodge like he's fucking, you know, the kung fu master who just sort of moves to the side and brushes the dust off their shoulder. Like, 
I wouldn't have been surprised if Vader would have pretended he had a long beard and flicked it like his goddamn Pi May from Kill Bill. All right? That's how much in the zone Vader is right here. He breaks... Well, first of all, Reva unleashes the second side of her lightsaber like she's Maw. I didn't even know it had a second side. It's fucking amazing. And she's using her animalistic fighting style that we covered, God, all the way back in episode two. It's a really unique Sith fighting style that I've never seen before, and I'm absolutely here for it. Uh... She does the cool Inquisitor spinny thing, which actually looks better in live action than I thought it would. I'd heard about this like Mary Poppins scenario and was like, oh God, I don't know that I even want to see that. But it looked cool here. And Vader breaks the saber, breaks the spinny thing. Um, so where well, she once had a double-ended Maul-style saber, she now has basically two sabers. Vader picks them both up and tosses her one on the ground like she's a fucking dog. But again, not being overly aggressive, but using her aggression and rage to his advantage. Not trying to get a flashy Anakin Skywalker style victory here. Just accomplishing what he needs to from the conflict and moving on to what he needs to do next. And, uh, you know, what else can I say? Uh, There's a few more moments in this confrontation before Darth Vader does a fucking lightsaber toss. And then... Before his saber gets back to him, he force steals Reva's lightsaber. His lightsaber comes back, and um, we've got Hayden Christensen playing Darth Vader in the suit uh, with two one-bladed red lightsabers. And folks, I know this is in Iowa, so it must be fucking heaven. It is truly a gift. This episode of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, Reva's on her knees now. The battle clearly lost. And as Vader impales her with a lightsaber, she relives the fear she had as a child watching uh, cloaked Darth Vader slash and kill her Jedi youngling companions. Uh, Vader reveals the whole time that he knew who she was as he stabs her. And she experiences a simultaneous sort of past and present stabbing. We get a great zoom in on Hayden Christensen as cloaked Darth Vader. It's fucking brilliant. And do you guys remember all the way back in the first episode when I talked about how amazing it made me feel to hear Luke Skywalker say the words Darth Sidious as a huge way to connect trilogies? Well, here we get the James Earl Jones Darth Vader voice saying, Youngling. We live in a truly amazing era of nerddom. And I thank you. <laughs> um, all right, let's wrap this up. I don't know how much longer I can go on it, but I've, I've made my important point now. Uh, the, the, re- the Grand Inquisitor was never dead. The real Grand Inquisitor is back. They leave her to die in the gutter. And that's one thing I want to cover at the end. I have a bit of a problem with that. Back on the transport, Roken lets Obi-Wan know that the hyperdrive is busted and the Empire is close behind. Um, but back planet side, Reva is still alive and she finds Obi-Wan's busted communicator and hears a broken version of the message from Bail Organa. Now, I do love how this is shot. Her gaining the knowledge of the Skywalker twins is such a virgence in the force that Obi-Wan feels her gain the knowledge for fuck's sake. He looks, I don't know how he looks. Ewan plays this really well, but is he frightened? Does he have a plan or an idea? Is he just completely think that the galaxy's fucked now if the Skywalker children fall? We cut 
to the desert planet of Tatooine and zoom in on a sleeping boy as we hit the end credits. Now, I've watched this episode a couple times today. And having relived it with you now and gotten my theories out there in the world, uh, because I'm exhausted, I'm going cle- to wrap this up quickly and concisely. I was going to give this episode a 9. Because I was going to deduct a point for not killing Reva. Because I felt like when I first watched it, that Darth Vader not killing her was absolutely ridiculous and out of character. But, you know, then I watched the episode to really watch it and not just get the fucking experience of, oh, my God, I watched a new episode of Obi-Wan Kenobi so nobody can spoil it for me now. Because, you know, sometimes it's like I got to watch it before some dipshit spoils it for me, you know. And having watched it and analyzing it, um, him not having to kill Reva to prove himself victorious was the whole fucking point of the episode. And it is how the Darth Vader character is now able to claim himself not the learner but the master. Uh, And I didn't get that the first time. I'm going a full 10 out of 10. It's episode 5. So fitting. This has got to be the Empire Strikes Back. And I was kind of thinking of this too. I've got this crazy theory that each episode of this series is somewhat a shadow or echo of the overall narrative tone or event of the original six Star Wars films. Yeah, we'll have that conversation another time. But if that's the case, that makes this episode 5, which makes it Empire Strikes Back, which is everybody's favorite. So it's so fitting. Guys, I, we talked a lot about a lot of cool shit. I cannot tell you how thankful I am to have this Obi-Wan Kenobi series as a thing that exists in the world. It, it's great entertainment. It's a lot of fun. It enhances the Star Wars narrative in ways it hasn't been enhanced in a very long time. And for God's sakes, it's put Anakin Skywalker, who's my favorite character of anything, back in in the cultural zeitgeist in a positive way. And I just love the, all the real-world implications of these actors getting to really fucking do this thing and do it right and do it in a way that is enhancing what came before without besmirching it or shitting on it. It's... 10 out of 10. That's going to do it for us here on Stream Fighter 2 with Episode 5 of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Thank you so much. I had a real fucking blast talking about it. And uh, I hope you guys did too. Uh, I am going to head to bed though because I've got a huge day tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to be working uh, not in the office I normally am. I'm going to head down to our Coruscant branch. And I hear that place. (laughs) I hear... (laughs) I hear the planet is just a fucking city or whatever. (laughs) I can't even finish the gag. Folks... Come back and see us on Stream Fighter 2 when we cover the series season who fucking knows finale. But we're heading to Tatooine. Uh, I guess, you know, I after I wrote down all my theories and everything like that, I was closing out the Disney Plus app and I was still on the Obi-Wan page. And like the poster art that's like on the list of Obi-Wan episodes pages is a fucking desert shot of Vader holding a saber in front of Obi-Wan wearing the outfit he gets in this episode five. So, hey, maybe they're going to fight on Tatooine and my entire artistic theory about this is why Vader is the no longer the learner, but now the master. Uh, then this was a waste of my time and yours. But, hey, hopefully you won't look back upon it that way and you got some enjoyment out of it. And come back when we cover that series finale. And uh, after that, we're going to 
do the first of a, a brief limited series here. Uh, Coruscant on a dollar a day. I'm Johnny C, and I'll see you the next time uh, we fight for streaming content.